Hi. Hello. <laughs> So, I feel like we've been trying to do this for 10 years, but maybe it hasn't been 10 years. It's funny you should start with that because late last night when I was in the thrall of like all of your books, I was like, you know what? I just want to actually remind myself of the timeline of mm -hmm. us trying to do this. We met for the first time September 21st, 2014. And we were on the Love, Sex, and Poetry yes. panel, I guess. Yeah, uh, Brooklyn. It, Brooklyn Book Festival, exactly. Yeah. Hafiza Jeter was the moderator, and it was you, our Erica Doyle, Angelo Nicolopoulos, and me. I, I Hello, what am I? and welcome to episode 105 of Commonplace with poet and professor Carl Phillips. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. I'm also sort of a mess. More on that later. Carl Phillips, my guest, is the author of 16 books of poetry, most recently, Then the War and Selected Poems, 2007 to 2020. His new book of prose, My Trade is Mystery, Seven Meditations from a Life in Writing, will be out soon from Yale University Press. Carl Phillips served as the judge of the Yale series of younger poets from 2011 through 2020 and edited the 2019 anthology Firsts, 100 Years of Yale Younger Poets. The winner of many awards, including a Guggenheim, Kingsley Tufts, Lambda Literary, and Tom Gunn Award, Phillips served as a chancellor for the American Academy of Poetry from 2006 to 2012. He teaches at Washington oh, University in St. Louis. And I was like, why did they pick me as like a cautionary tale? Like, what, what is going on here? Well, I remember not understanding why I was there because I think Angelo read some poem that was, I want to say about his penis maybe. And, um, but I thought, oh, I just sort of have metaphysical kind of sex thoughts. And <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, it was fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, Finally, and, okay. eight years after meeting Carl, almost five years to the day of inviting him to be on Commonplace, I recorded this conversation over Zoom from my home in Washington Heights on September 19th, 2022. And I'm so glad I did. In this conversation, Carl and I talk about syntax, about how in recent years his poems have become more and more stripped down how he's changed his relationship to social media, poetry as a wedge between the self and the unbearable, about writing for years about a limited number of topics. We talk about the pandemic, metaphysical sex, teaching, being a reader and a judge, his Instagram cooking show, Cooking with Carl, and because I incessantly ask him to talk about it, falling in love again in, in August of 2019. We've been trying and trying and trying. And yeah. one of the things that I've been thinking about is in my life since 2017, I've gotten divorced. I've had surgery. I had two big health crises and health scares. I went on the dating apps. I fell in love. I moved. There's been a pandemic. It's not <laughs> over. And here's my question. Yes. 
are you the same person? I mean, obviously we would be having a different conversation if this was 2017, but do you, do you feel like you are essentially the same person or are you a different person mm-hmm. than if we had recorded this in 2017? Huh. First, the business stuff. In honor of this episode, all Commonplace patrons will get access to a playlist of music curated by Carl Phillips and the audio of Radiance versus Ordinary Light, a tribute to Carl Phillips, an association of writing programs panel that I recorded on March 28, 2019 at AWP in Portland, Oregon. The panel was moderated by Ricky Laurentis and contains close readings of Carl Phillips's poems and comments about Carl from poets Aaron Ballou, Don Lundy Martin, and Justin Philip Reed, and a reading at the end of the tribute by Carl himself. Patrons will also get a pamphlet containing the text of the poems read and discussed in the tribute. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of one of the following books. Cortege, From the Devotion, Pastoral, Coin of the Realm, and The Art of Daring, Risk, Restlessness, Imagination, all by Carl Phillips and all courtesy of Grey Wolf Press. Then The War by Carl Phillips, courtesy of Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Too Bright to See by Linda Gregg, courtesy of Grey Wolf, plus Collected Poems by Robert Hayden, courtesy of Liverwright. For this episode, Commonplace's charitable partner will give $250 to Doorways, chosen by Carl Phillips. Doorways provides affordable housing for people living with HIV-AIDS in St. Louis. All of us at Commonplace are thinking a lot about labor these days. Some of you know that for more than a decade, I've been an adjunct professor at NYU. I'm proud to also be a joint council member of the ACT-UAW Local 7902, the union that represents me and the other NYU adjuncts. Some of you know about the two-year, sadly unsuccessful grievance I filed with the help of my union against the NYU Creative Writing Department for a violation of my contractual reappointment rights during early COVID. I was eventually pressured to stop my grievance in light of contract violations much graver than mine, entire departments being fired, adjuncts being forced to teach in person but receiving zero hazard pay, adjuncts suddenly required to move courses online but getting no course redesign compensation. It goes on and on, large and small serious violations. When recent contract negotiations stalled, the 7902 moved to authorize a strike. This required hours of time and energy, and a strike seemed imminent. This work was worth it. From a recent UAW 7902 email, with over 100 members attending the final day of negotiation, Unionized adjunct faculty at NYU reached a tentative agreement with university administration. Having won their strike authorization vote by 95%, with 72% of eligible members participating, the union came to an agreement at 3.30 a.m., hours after the previous contract expired. 
The new contract secures a much higher minimum starting adjunct salary and small but meaningful pay raises for people who have been there for a long time, better access to health and retirement benefits, some COVID pay, and other benefits. This question of fair labor practices is both simple and incredibly complicated, and something that the Commonplace team and I discuss frequently. Of course it is. So much of what we talk about on Commonplace is how to live as an artist, reader, writer, listener, how to value art, and how to work to dismantle systems of oppression, including capitalism. How we make a living is a big part of this. The direct patron model, the only funding we currently have is from our patrons, is imperfect. 100% of your post-tax patron dollars go to pay the Commonplace team. Valentin Conady, Christine LaRusso, Langa Chinyoka, an hourly living wage. And they deserve much, much more. Currently, we don't receive enough support from patrons to break even. And my labor on the podcast has always been unpaid. Right now, our patron support does not cover the full number of hours worked by V, Langa, and Christine, any of our equipment or expenses. I'm proud that Commonplace has no ads and no institutional or corporate funding, but this is not a sustainable model of podcasting. I didn't start Commonplace to make money, and I've never been able to make money from my art, but it's essential to me to be a good enough employer, and it bothers the hell out of me that we don't compensate our guests and that I'm working for free. Please reach out if you'd like to talk to us, a bunch of poets turned podcasters, and a dog about any ethical financial ideas you might have. To become a Commonplace Book Club member or a patron at any level, or to make a one-time donation to Commonplace, please visit patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast or commonpodcast.com. On our website, you can also sign up for our per-episode newsletter, which we are expanding to include more content-rich delights, such as, for this episode, two favorite recipes from Carl and some from the Commonplace team. One more thing about patrons. When someone becomes a Commonplace patron, we send an email asking how you heard about the podcast, who you'd like us to feature, and anything else you want us to know. I want to share a few excerpts of a patron's wonderful response. Hello, Rachel and staff. It's finally time to reply to your welcome email and tell you how I came to Commonplace. After listening for almost a year, thoroughly enjoying Rachel's detailed, expansive conversations, it's refreshing to embrace maximalism, savor it, feeling it gives me permission to try some of it now. I came to Rachel and the podcast by a circuitous route. I have an MFA, 1979, in which I learned way more about sexism and misogyny in academia than I learned about writing. The experience left me feeling thwarted, betrayed. Upon graduation, we realized instructors now viewed us as competition for limited resources, so any notion of continuing connection and support was demolished. I continued to write and publish sporadically, but I realized I hated teaching college English, so needed another career I at least liked. This patron goes on to describe how she moved to the Bay Area, became a psychotherapist, a chemical dependency counselor, a clinical health educator, 
then retired and ended up taking creative writing classes at a local community college. During the pandemic, the patron stumbled across my name in a course description and looked me and my work up and found commonplace. I started listening and have been hooked ever since, Gloria continues. The podcasts are way better than any lecture these poets might give. The fact that they are conversations and not interviews provides a deep intimacy and sense of truth-telling, revealing the writer's thoughts, emotions, and creative process, as well as a recording of the growing intimacy between Rachel and her guest. It's like no other podcast I've heard, and I'm very grateful for its existence. For me personally, says Gloria, the podcast gives me helpful information for my own writing, shows me I'm not alone in my struggles, provides varied examples of the creative process in real time, tells me there's no one right way to make or revise a poem, offers wide and generous approaches to writing. Expansive? Yes. And it's such a gift. Listening is a reparative experience. It's healing the old wounds from that shitty MFA program that remained stuck in my head until now. Thank you, Gloria. Thank you so much for writing to us and for supporting the show. Okay, so why am I a mess? Why has it taken me this long to air this episode? While I was listening and re-listening to this conversation that you're about to hear, I dove deep into Eileen Miles' work to prepare for our recording. Then I recorded with Eileen while I was teaching and preparing to strike, while I was deepening my critical response process pedagogy and listening to Liz Lerman's revolutionary book, Hiking the Horizontal, on audio, and while putting the final, final, final changes into my book of lectures, which is coming out in February. And always, during this time, parenting. And deep in the transformations of the romantic relationship I talk about with Carl. And then, amidst all this opening and changing, my beloved needed to end or step away from our relationship and broke up with me. In this conversation, Carl says, maybe falling in love is falling into yourself trying to edit this conversation on falling in love while suddenly in the middle of a breakup was challenging. I'd maybe fallen out of myself. I was many selves, all so diffuse. I, in scare quotes, became withdrawn. The only thing I knew how to do was to keep on keeping on like a bird that flew. Hey, Bob Dylan. And most birds aren't podcasters. But once again, and this is why I keep doing it, working on commonplace is some special magic, like the tarot, not predictive, but deeply meaningful and meaning-making and healing. I hope Carl's poems and words and all these commonplace episodes reach you wherever you are, in love, in pain, in pleasure, in curiosity, in terror, in keeping on, and at least keep you company. Here's Carl. That's a good question. Uh, I mean, I haven't had as many things happen as what you listed have happened to you since 2017. Uh, 
but I feel very, I feel very different. Um, but part of that is the whole slogging through the previous presidential years. Um, some of it was that. I know I became a very different person as the world kind of changed, and um, but not because of particular events. I suppose um, I think it's made me a little bit more of a recluse than I even was, and I already was one. And then, of course, there was pandemic. I think I think there's some some clarity about about how people seem to feel and think in this country. Mm. And, you know, I've gone all my life as a biracial person, as a black person, a queer person, understanding that I am not wanted in a lot of spaces. But, but I had kind of taken for granted a kind of civility, I suppose, or you can call it even tolerance. Um, and, and the openness of, of hate has kind of shocked me and also to see how quickly everything that I grew up watching fall down all these barriers they're back up again you know and it, it seems like threats to civil liberties obviously Roe versus Wade all these things that I thought were in place and um so it's I don't know it's made me rethink uh how I interact I guess I I, I don't know it sounds very vague and I think sometimes it's made, I think in terms of my writing, uh, at least the poems, it's made me feel, not that I've looked at the world naively before, it's not that, but, but I feel like I watch the work getting pared down and as if I have less patience for, in my own work, for syntactical complexity, um, which now sometimes feels like a lot of too many steps in a dance or something um, that I'm not interested in dancing anymore. And, but I feel as if things just seem to be getting very stripped down, what my tolerance level is, um, what I'm, the, the foolishness that I would actually spend time looking at. Um, and I've watched how my handling of social media has changed. I, just in simple things like stopping notifications so that I at least do not have a phone that beckons to me from across the room. You know, mm -hmm. I can still find things, but, but I thought, you know, you, most of the time, Carl, when you pick up the phone, you look at it and you wish you hadn't. So, so maybe you should do things to make you look <laughs> at it less. And I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about cooking with Carl? Oh yeah. How, how that came to and be. So yeah, I was just sitting around in the beginning of lockdown and it really started from just, I decided on a Saturday when I was just making something that I would do installments, keep doing a kind of live check-in of how the bread is baking or whatever I was making. And, and it was my partner who said, um, you know, there's a, you can video the whole thing in one step. I didn't even know, understand this. And, and that somehow led to doing this for a while. For a couple of weeks, it was every day or something, which I don't understand. And then it became once a week. But what I found is that, uh, one, I, I guess I do love performing and I love, I guess I like, there was something stupid about 
thinking people are watching me doing, I think it's that I grew up watching Julia Child and with all the accidents that would happen. And so I like the idea that I'm making something and sometimes it doesn't work out or I know I can't sing that great, but there I was singing Whitney Houston songs or whatever and dancing in this little kitchen. And, and what I didn't expect is how people would really, one, be surprised that I apparently had this personality. And, and they really loved it. And then, became, then it became a kind of thing where, yeah, I guess I thought it was a lot of fun. And, I, and it was kind of an awakening thing. It's like, you know, Carl, you are fun. You think you're, you think you're a quiet reflective person all the time, but people actually kind of like you. And I've been thinking about it, actually. I just got back from Breadloaf last month, and I hadn't really done any of those things in the last few years. And, and there, too, I came away thinking, you need to do more of these because you need a... It's good to stay home most of the time, but you need a regular reminder that you actually enjoy being with groups of people, and they enjoy spending time around you. And I think maybe because of all the things that had happened in the news since 2016 and everything, I just, I feel I've been more guarded and kind of assumed that anyone is a possible enemy, especially living here in Missouri, such a red state. So, so I just, I just felt like you can't assume anyone that you you thought was your friend or your neighbor is actually on your side. And, but that, you know, that's not a good thing. And I've, I actually... I thought about how my parents were very much that way. My mother in particular were very much suspicious of the world and didn't like to interact. Um, and I understand as a biracial couple in the 50s and 60s, of course, they had every right to be paranoid. But but for me, I think it's it's a dangerous thing to be that paranoid and, and to be that unto myself. And, and also... I don't know, this will sound kind of sappy, but it's important to, for me to remind myself that actually most people have goodwill and, and even love in different ways. And, and that's, you know, I think maybe I'd lost sight of that because, and it's also why I stopped getting things like the New York Times because I would just, it would be a barrage of hate and all of that. And I, I want to know the news, but at the same time, it seems so skewed sometimes it's easy to give up hope. And I didn't want to do that. So, yeah, but now the problem is people keep saying, when's the cooking show coming back? And I, and I realize now I don't know how I found the energy or time for it. Um, there seems to be too much else to do. So maybe it's a retirement plan, you know, we'll see. Do you feel like that experience of cooking with Carl and a kind of rethinking the importance of being connected, being vulnerable, being with groups of people, allowing other people to see your fun side. Has that gotten into the poems? Has that changed the poems? Because I see your poems as having both of those, you know, for a long, long time, having both of those elements, both on, on the one hand, having um, content around sex, around the body that, that is, that some people feel so anxious about and paranoid about, like, I don't want anyone to know this about uh -huh. me, you know, or, or even put it in my poems and assume that, 
you know, this is me. Yeah. Um, and yet, and but the poems also have, um, I mean, sometimes, it's interesting what you said about syntax. I, in re reading a lot of your work, um, syntax is both the site of incredible complexity and a kind of like holding of opposites or a, a rhetorical strategy that 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 complex long sentence full of incredible punctuation stretched over the lines creating like a spring in the work um and it's, it's like oh it's kind of foreplay but it's also it it it, it creates this like in, incredible uh, momentum and power, but it also, especially for a reader who isn't reading the poems several times, slowly, carefully uh, attuned to how important the punctuation and line breaks are, it, it also is a kind of, it can be a kind of distancing or uh -huh. a kind of intellectualizing of the explicit, racy, risky, daring, sexy um, content. I, I love that. I mean, I guess I think, I mean, partly what, you seem, what you're saying also is it's kind of like a, I mean, you could say it about my poems, you could say it about who I am as a person. I mean, I think, yeah, maybe, I guess I am both things. I'm open and I'd like to think I'm a loving person. I care about taking care of others. Um, but I'm also on guard a lot, um, and and not. Um, I guess I feel like there's reason to be on guard in in life. Um, um, I don't immediately trust everyone, and and it's also strange, you know. At least it seems like in the position I've sort of found myself in um, in the poetry world it seems wise to sort of, I don't know, sort of wonder why someone immediately wants to spend time with you or, you know, who knows, you know, is it, is it because they just want to get to know you or is it something they feel you can do for them? You know, so that's, that's always the problem of having some kind of power and then, and then others wanting access to that or their perceptions of power. Um, but, but in terms of the poems, it's always seemed, and I guess I was less, well, I was going to say I was less aware of this when I was writing my first book, but I guess I probably instinctively knew it. I've always thought that, you know, if you're going to be lofty, you have to have something else that grounds it. Otherwise, it becomes kind of precious. And, and so I'm, I like having a word like fuck occur after some long intellectual statement has been made. So it's clear that, oh, I also use this language, and I don't always think at this higher register. Um, and, and I, but I also think that the ordinary being made into something more extraordinary is part of the work that poetry can do. So, so I, like, I like the balancing of that. And I don't know, when it comes to care in poems, I think a lot about, I've been thinking a lot about these words Michael Palmer said when he came here and visited um, for a couple of weeks. And he spoke at some reading about how 
language was a sacrament and that we had to be extremely careful with with words because they were the handling of them was the handling of like holy elements or something and although i don't believe all of that this idea that oh these are actually not as since i've decided i want to be a poet handling words in just sloppy ways seems irresponsible to my job as a poet and um it's one of the frustrations i have with a lot of contemporary poetry is that it seems it can seem as if there's there seems to be an urgency about what's being said but how it's being said seems to be just thrown out there and i can't tell sometimes is this prose is it poetry is it journalism uh is an overheard conversation and not that those things can't all have place in poetry but but i don't know why i don't know i don't know why someone wouldn't want it doesn't mean you have to use elaborate syntax to show that you're handling language correctly um but i i point often to sentences out of hemingway's novels with my students and say look you know they everyone talks about hemingway as being the most basic kind of writer but the syntax is incredible and and it mm-hmm. it's just so well done that you think oh these are just regular journalism sentences but they're not and so in that sense i feel like that's that's the issue i have with poetry sometimes and when i'm writing my own poems i'll think you know carl if you would let go you could you could have like <laughs> 40 books right now because you know but then i'll look at something i did look at something today online though i won't name it that was featured as a poem for the day and i thought if this is a poem why are you worrying carl you know it's like then anything's a poem but but I guess I have to stay true to my own sense of what a poem needs to be for me. I, I so I'm holding uh then the war. Oh um, yeah. And I wanted to talk about this a little uh-huh. bit in in terms of what you're saying. So this is a new book. Uh-huh. I love the way it, so often poets have a new and selected and they have uh Select, selections from previous books and some new poems. But this is a new book yeah. along with selected poems um, uh, from previous published books, mm-hmm. as well as a chapbook that you published in, in its entirety here, reprinted again. Um, but I, I'm, I'm really interested in a few things. I mean, this is a fantastic volume. I'm really enjoying Thank you. it. Um, I'm interested in the inclusion of this, uh, of Among the Trees, which certainly looks like uh-huh. prose. And I was like, "Woo, Carl, what's going on? Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and the decision to, to have this be a book with selections from previous books. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. It's a, and just stop me when it's too tedious a story. Um, uh, the okay first of all i just had the book called then the war which is the new part and that's what i had mm-hmm. turned in to my publisher and and that was all set and i got a contract and that's what was going to be published the whole time for years i have wanted to be published in the uk and and i was told oh well 
you'll just have to wait till they ask or something. I don't know. I thought, and I kept seeing all these first book poets having their books in England. I thought, why do I not have this? Anyway, I guess they listened to me. So one day the publisher says, oh, Carcanet over in England would like to do a book and they'd like to do like a selected poems to introduce you to the UK. And I thought, okay, that sounds fine. And and they said, yes, we're actually thinking it's time for you to do another selected here as well. Because I had done one like in 2006 or something. And, and the way I heard it, it seemed like they were saying, you know, maybe we should do the selected now and hold off on then the war. And, and that'll tie in with what Carcanet does. And I kind of panicked, and this was all happening while I was on the phone walking my dog. And, and I said, well, maybe it should all go together. Like, there could be then the war. And because I said, do they want that? And they said, no, they're asking for selected. And I said, well, maybe we could do a package where it was all one fat book, which would also satisfy mm -hmm. all these reviewers who constantly say my volumes are too slender. When did it become bad to be slender, especially as a book? <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Anyway, um, and they said, okay, and they ran that by Karkinet, and they were all excited about this. At which point, I, and, and then the thing is, the publisher said, okay, when, you know, when can you have a selected together? And I said, within 24 hours. Because I th somehow I thought this was all going to fall off the table if I didn't do it right away. So I scrambled and did the selected, and I threw the chapbook in because I actually... I feel like some of my best poems are in that chat book and, but it was a small chat book place and, and mm -hmm. a lot of people don't know of it. And I thought, well, this would be a way to include it. And it represents a, a phase that I think was important. And, um, so that's how that came about. I mean, it wasn't supposed to be. And the whole debate then became, they wanted to call it then the war new and selective poems. And I argued and argued to get them to do then the war colon and selected poems so and the and had to be a capital a so that it would be clear mm -hmm. this was a whole separate thing in some way i at first i didn't want a colon i wanted a slash or something so it would be two books clearly anyway um that's how that's ended up because i don't like those new and selecteds where you know especially if it's an author where i have all their other books and i think okay i I'm not going to buy this just for the 12 new poems. I can read those in the store. So, so I thought, okay, fine. As for the prose piece, it's interesting because it was originally a commissioned um, essay for this magazine called Emergence, and they were doing an issue on trees. And I just kind of wrote it out, and it was, um, you know, there were asterisks between the sections, and, and later... I, when I, I, I realized there were 14 of them. And to me, I think, oh, a sonnet, you know, 14 lines. And when it came to then the war, I thought, you know, people had talked about this essay and how they really loved it. And, and then I thought, you know, maybe I should throw that in too. And I've always wanted to have something like what Lowell did in whatever that book is. What is that book? Life Studies. Um, yeah, where there's a prose yep. passage. And but I wanted each section to be on its own page. So it would seem as if, mm -hmm. are these prose poems? Or is this a prose poem essay? Or is it just an essay? Um, and 
Yeah. And, and for me, I know that's, I mean, I just said Lowell had done it before, but for me, that was radical to have something that even looks like prose in a book. And, you know, I guess I think the idea should always be to surprise yourself as most poets say that. And yeah, I think it, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with how it turned out. So yeah, I think it's an amazing book. Would you be willing to read something sure. from uh, Then the War? Maybe maybe two things? Sure, maybe, whatever you um, If you want. are... What about, what about either the beginning of Among the Trees and then something else that's not from that series? Okay. Okay. Um, okay, so here's the beginning. Like, just the first one, right? Sure. Here it yeah. is. Uh, so... These sections don't have titles. It's just the whole thing's called Among the Trees. What happened back there among the trees is only as untenable as you allow yourself or just decide to believe it is. It happened, and now it's over. And the end feels, to you at least, both like the end of a long pilgrimage and like the end of a well-reasoned, irrefutable argument which is its own form of pilgrimage, don't both depend on stamina and faith in the right proportions? Wasn't the point at the end persuasion? And um, how about since it's autumn, this poem called To Autumn? I felt it was so ballsy, it's on page 70, so ballsy to call it To Autumn when, you know, there's, is it the Keats poem? Shelley, somebody wrote a poem called To Autumn. And then Louise Glick did too. And then I thought, well, God damn it, I can do it too. To Autumn. <laughs> Whatever it is that some nights can rescue cricket song from becoming just more of the usual white noise, tonight it's working. The hours toss with the apparent weightlessness of leaves when each leaf seems for once its own dream, not part of the larger, more general dream of leaves being limited to tossing with either diminishment or renewal when why should those be the only choices? What about joy and despair? What about ambition? If wild, I was once more gentle. There's a version of autumn where the sun's reflections on the river tonight look at one moment like freight thrown overboard, at the next like signal lights cast up through water by a city submerged where the river's deepest. There's another version Holiness has no limits there, only two requirements, to be hidden, to adore what's hidden. Seems a nice autumnal poem. And we're kind of in autumn almost, Um, even though it's like 90 degrees here today. Will you read one more? Sure. This is is my secret favorite from the the new poems. on page 19, in a field at sunset. Ah. And it's funny that I love this one so much, uh, especially because I don't write short poems almost ever. Um, And yeah, I've been really, I've been thinking about this poem every day since since I read it. I have to say, I like it myself. You know, I like to think I should like all my poems, but I was pleased I could write such a short poem. Anyway, it's called In a Field at Sunset. When he asked if I still loved him, I didn't answer. But of course I loved him. He'd become by then like the rhyme between lost and most. 
I love when I read oh. those, that poem at a reading. Like, usually I read it after I've read some long poem. And then everyone's like settling in like, okay, here we go, another Carl. But I thought, <laughs> I thought, how short can you make it, Carl? And how plain can you make it? And that's mm-hmm. actually a question I ask myself a lot now. It's like, is this too plain to be a poem? I thought that about this poem. I thought this is the beginning mm-hmm. of something, um, not the poem itself. And it took me a while to think, it's fine. It's, it's actually, it's got a lot of drama going on just in that. And of course, you know, it's that little lost and most and the way it is and isn't a rhyme. Stop me from talking about my own poem. So often, almost always, when I'm talking to someone for commonplace, um, there's, there's a secret or not so secret thing or question that I really want uh-huh. to know. And it's not like there's something, it's usually something that has no answer, but like, I want to talk to this person about this. And it's, it's always personal. And sometimes I find a way to ask a whole bunch of questions around it. Anyway, I, what I want to talk to you about, what I want to ask you about is falling in love. Uh-huh. And this poem to me this poem does something that i experience physically that feels to me very much an enactment of the feeling of falling in love or of being in love and 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 realizing it's it it's it's not something it's the beginning of something even if it's with someone that you've been with but there's like there's something and it and it's it's metaphysical it's physical it's you know all these things i i don't i can't i don't even have the words for it but i want to ask you so (laughs) I I watched the YouTube video of you talking to oh god what's his name Char I want to say Charlie Oh Ron Hunt, Charles not his name Ron Charles Ron uh-huh. Charles thank yeah. you and to me I, <laughs> I found that absolutely hilarious I highly recommend that people watch it I I mean I'm bringing my own baggage to it uh but I watched because I wrote about it I watched the firing line uh with William F Buckley and Allen Ginsberg um over and over and over again <clears throat> and there's some weird way in which I feel like the two of you are like recreating some of the dynamics really? and wow. that bizarre yes huh. because I <laughs> I'm not I'm not always sure that Ron Charles is is getting your humor uh-huh. frankly but but it's it there's some really amazing moments in in that that I I was like laughing out loud I was like oh my god Carl I've never um, watched it In any case <laughs> watch the Ginsburg Buckley and then watch watch yourself. It's pretty fascinating. Uh, In any case, so in that, um, you tell the story of coming out and of 
your first book getting accepted uh, for publication and you say, and if I, if I have the details right, um, that you, you were married to a woman, um, you were writing poems, you sent the poems off, you know, you, the, the book was up for consideration and you went on a trip and you met a man on the street and fell in love and told your wife uh, that you were gay and that you were gonna break up and you got uh, your acceptance on your first book and from, uh, and Rachel Hottis was the judge and then all of this happened in a, in a sh like maybe in a week or in just like a few days period of yeah. time. And then Rachel Hottis's uh, note from the judge you know, from her, from her, her, her sort of introduction to, to the book, uh, said, oh, this is clearly uh, a man of color who uh, is sexually attracted to other men. And that, in a way, she outed you to yourself on some mm -hmm. level, or the poems, that that wasn't something that either you or your wife had really seen in the poems, even though Rachel Hottis had. Um, and so first of all, is that story really true? Yes, it is true. I mean, uh, I mean, I hadn't gone on a trip when I met this guy. I, she and I, my wife and I have moved closer to Boston because I was starting a PhD program. I thought I was going to be doing a PhD program in classical philology. And, but yeah, um, and then, and then I met this guy on the street in Boston, and mm -hmm. yeah, and and I will say, I mean, one part that's not in all that that I didn't mention to Ron either is, you know, it's it's not like then at that exact moment I realized, oh, I'm gay. I mean, I had I wondered this maybe three or four years into being married, and and had ended up. Um, being honest with my wife about it and saying, you know, I think this is something that I need to think about. And, um, and her response was that, you know, maybe I should go to therapy. And, and I did go to therapy, but um, that became problematic because I ended up having sex with a therapist, which is another story. Um, and so, um, who was male. And so, mm -hmm. so, but also, I also thought, you know, I don't think this is the kind of thing to go to therapy for. Um, it, ex except to maybe understand it, not to make it go away. And so, but yeah, it, the cat meeting this man was a catalyst for it. I mean, when you speak of falling in love, I, I guess I did fall in love with him. And that's when I realized, oh, this isn't just um, a sexual thing that you can kind of get out of the way sometimes on the side, but this is actually who you are. And um, mm -hmm. anyway, but yeah, but yeah, it is, it was a, a wild time with all that and um and because I also loved my wife and I we had been best friends through college and so it was very hurtful to be honest mm -hmm. and at the same time it seemed I, I could I knew two other many examples of closeted men who were married and just living a lie and I didn't want to do that so anyway yes I think I might be interrupting yes that's question is uh, that story is true and okay <laughs> Okay, so, okay, so, and 
do you feel comfortable to the extent that you remember uh-huh. sharing more about what that falling in love feeling was with that man? Yeah. I mean, you, you ended up having a relationship with him for a very long time. Yes, right? 17 years. Um, so, you know, I think... I mean, how I described it to myself at the time and to him was that it felt as if I had fallen into myself, like I, as if I hadn't understood that I'd always been traveling slightly outside my own body um, and my own way of thinking. And then it was like, oh, this, this is who I am. And, you know, that's, which of course isn't, you know, when do we ever really fully understand who we are? But, but this seemed a very important piece to resolve and... And I think, so So for me, that falling in love at the time was, he was older and um, had been out much longer. And so it was also a situation of absolute trust and, and, and sort of letting somebody else guide me in some ways. And, and I was grateful for that. Um, though later, I, in hindsight, I see how that, is a problematic way to start or what was problematic is we didn't realize maybe I realized it a bit I don't know that the circumstances under which you fall in love with somebody are going to change and in ways you can't predict and and so how I like to think of it is there was an evolving in different directions um you know I I kind of but, for, but at the time, to fall in love was in some ways to fall in thrall to somebody else and, and to absolutely say whatever you say is, act, is, is the right answer. Um, and wherever you want to go, is, I'm, I'm going to follow. Um, mm-hmm. That's problematic when things turn a bit and you have your own agency in your life a bit more later. But, but I guess it, that's what it was. I don't know that falling in love is always a... Not always sure it's a good thing, because <laughs> because it takes away some of your senses in, in some way, your, some of your thinking. So it feels as if it's the absolute right thing to do. But you maybe we forget that we're falling, and, and falling can yeah. be quite dangerous actually. So um, and you're falling also for what for what's apparent at the moment and what the person has shown of themselves and. So I don't know if that's much of a description of falling in love. It's not, I, and I think it's different with each person, I suppose. Like, mm-hmm. first of all, each person falls in love differently, but we fall in love differently with other people too. And, um, and I certainly think that, like my partner now, I met him when I was, I don't know, in my 50s. Um, that's a very different way to meet somebody than to meet someone when you're like 31 and, you know, and just coming out and you have no, I, you know, by the time I was in my fifties, I, I've had a lot of other experiences, not all of them great. And, and I'm less prone to falling in love in that kind of sure, whatever you say is right. I'm more likely to ask questions and to, and to make sure this person is who they say they are, which makes it seem like mm-hmm. it's not love, but I think it's. I think it actually counts for more because you're going into something actually having thought about it, as opposed to just saying, "Ah, eh, 
whatever. It's a big adventure. Yeah, I, and and I think I'm reading your work this time around in such a different way than I did, you know, when I was married and in the same monogamous mm-hmm. relationship that I'd been in since I was 22, mm-hmm. 20, you know, and... Yeah, so I just really didn't have any experience with what you're talking about. And so I'm reading your poems differently. I was talking to Pergita Sharma about this, too, because, you know, I, I, I read her book, Grief Sequence, before and after I got divorced and had a completely different uh, feeling about yeah. it. I'm wondering if you could read Blizzard. It's not in Then the War. It's not in the selected poems of Then the uh-huh. War. But it's one of my favorite of your poems. It's in Silver Chest. Oh, can I just go over to the next room and get that book? Sure, Hold on. of course. Awesome. You know, I was going to say while I'm looking for it. Oh, I see it. This all that we're saying here about bef- how we experience things before and after different things in our lives. I've been <clears throat> for maybe a year or two rereading things that novels that I read last in my twenties, and mm. and it's been fascinating. Um, you know, one of the best examples for me was rereading Middlemarch, and I remember I loved the book when I first read it. I was probably twenty five. But I do remember thinking, why don't these people get on with their lives? Like, why, why is this woman so stuck in this terrible marriage? And she should move on. She's clearly better than that. And why doesn't she run away with this other man? So, fine. Then I read it, and I'm 63 now, and I read it, and I think, I know exactly how you find yourself in a relationship long past when you realize maybe you should have moved on. Or, or you just don't for various things. Or, um, and yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It makes me wonder actually why we ask young people to read so many things. I almost think, wait till you've had a lot of heartbreak and losses and things. And then, <laughs> and then, and then you'll really see these are fully fledged human beings on the page. But it, they, they drove me nuts at the time. Um, that Dorothea, I think that's her name. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you've reread that you're like, yeah, you know what? That's for younger people. It doesn't. It doesn't speak to me now that I'm sixty three. Huh. Yeah. You know, or like. Yeah, there was something recently. Um, well, I didn't reread it, but I was reading about it. I was very caught up in John Updike's novels, and I mm. look now and I first of all I see so much that's just politically wrong about it. Um, and so I'm more surprised. It's not like, I mean, there probably are things, I just can't name them right now, where I thought, oh, that's for a younger person. Well, one that I've never read yet. I tried when Salinger died to read Catcher in the Rye finally. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I see why this was a high school book for people. I, I can't read this at all. Um, though I can read his other books, um, Nine Stories, for example. But... Or I feel that way about music sometimes. I'll look at the music that I loved and think, oh, you know, some of it, sure, I still listen to the Carly Simon or something. And then there are things mm-hmm. that the Go-Go's, 
I'm not going to put the go-go's on again. Um, but <laughs> I had a great time partying to them for a long time. Oh, shall I read this poem, Blizzard? Yes. Which yes. ends with a... I should say, the ending is a translation from a poem by the Emperor Hadrian. Um, a little poem that he wrote. Anyway, Blizzard. After agony had left his body to find another, or in search of no one, just agony on its own for once, merely cruising, something stayed, like a precipitate. Grief, maybe. That's what they said as if such had ever been grief's properties. Why is lying to others always so much harder than to ourselves? Yesterday, for example, starlings in flight, the ice of the frozen pond beneath them briefly containing their shadows, not reflecting them, not the way water does, the way the water did, the way it will in spring when the pond has unlocked itself all over again with no more regard than disregard for the wings and faces that pass or don't across it. So what? So what? When I say I trust you, I mean I've considered that you could betray me, which means I know you will, that we'll have between us at last that understanding, which is a safer thing than trust, not a worse, not a better thing. Wanderer, whisperer, little firework, little not my own, Soon enough, the non-world we've been steering for from the start. Colorless, stripped of motion, all those pleasures you knew so well how to give to others, gone also. Pleasure, I can hear you say, what world was that? It's been a little while since I read that poem. Oh, that penultimate stanza. There's something for me about these lines when I say I trust you, I mean I've considered that you could betray me, which means I know you will, and we'll have between us at last that understanding, which is a safer thing than trust. Um, I'm like, yes, that right there is describing for me in language and outside of language somehow the particularities of this love after 50, uh -huh. this love um, with a different sense of self-knowledge, little firework, little not my own, oh, soon enough, the non-world we've been steering for from the start. There's, there's something there, and I, I, I mean, it's this very selfish line of questioning because this is where, what I, uh, you know, this is the food I'm uh -huh. eating right now. Um, and it's not, I don't see it so explicitly, you know, in, in poetry and other places like the, the songs and the stories of subsequent love. And I guess the other question that I have around this is you've written in your poems, but also very much in the art of daring, very explicitly about some of the overlapping qualities of poetry, reading, writing, the reader's relationship with the poem and restlessness, eroticism, sex, 
And I guess I also was wondering for you about this falling in love thing, mm-hmm. because I think, do you fall in love with poems the way you fall in love with people? Falling in love means something, mm-hmm. but it means something different with each person and different as we change, mm-hmm. as we get older. When I first met my love, we, it, I was having a very hard time with object permanence. So he has kids from a previous marriage. When he was with his kids and I was with mine, I really was not sure he was real. I had a feeling that he was a figment of my imagination. When we would uh, sleep together in the bed and we were both asleep and then we would wake up in the morning, I really wanted to know like what I felt that our sleeping selves had a different relationship to each other than our waking selves. When we were talking about books, I was not sure we were the same people as when we were having sex. And I, I, and then as the course of the relationship kind of like went on, I, I would say to him, are you the same? Are you the same or are you a different person? Are you a different person when we're in Washington Heights or in Brooklyn or in Maine or on the phone? Or I asked him just a few days ago, are you the same person as you were when we met? And previously he had said, yeah, of course I'm the same person when I'm in Brooklyn and Washington Heights, when I'm asleep, when I'm awake, when I'm, you know, when we're having sex, when we're talking about books, you know, all this stuff. And he right away said, no, I'm not the same person Uh I was when I met you. And this is sort of the question I'm also trying to think about, like, is there an authentic self? Is there a stable self? Is there a self at all? Like, you know, all of this stuff does falling in love is is the definition of is falling in love just a feeling like being hungry or is it something that retroactively you say oh that was the beginning of a change in me that means that that was not that was something i'm going to call falling in love as opposed to like an awareness of the beginning of change, like almost like a presentiment. Um, and that's what falling in love is. And does it, does it have to be with a person or with something that can also change? Or can it be with something like a poem, which could change you, but the poem doesn't really change? So... <laughs> So what is the question? <laughs> what is, do I fall in love with the other question? things besides people? Yeah, let's start with that. I mean, sure. I mean, you can fall in love with different kinds of food, you know, a book, some music. I think I, think I do that all the time. And, and then, mm-hmm. or, but I begin to think falling in love is more like a fascination. <clears throat> so with all the, I don't remember exactly, but I feel like the roots of that word are involved with spell making um so you know to to fascinate is also to bewitch and so so it has some slightly negative connotations and and i i guess i think so i can be fascinated with something but then interest can change and 
you know, you know, you decide you like a certain kind of a restaurant. So you go there 10 times in 10 weeks and then it's like, okay, I'm over that. And which can happen with people as well. And um, so, so I don't know, maybe that's what falling in love is for me is, is, is having one's attention briefly held on to, um, or maybe for an extended amount of time. I think that's why people talk about the difference between falling in love and loving somebody, because it's easier mm. to fall in love. And to love seems, as I understand it, means feeling some kind of attachment to somebody across many kind of mutations. The person, I mean, like those wedding vows and sickness and in health, I mean, just that, or, or just the fact that you don't know how somebody's going to react when their parent dies and, and you've not known them through grief and which can, a test of love can be, okay, well, can I help this person? Do I want to help this person through that? Or, or does the person become such that I need to move elsewhere and I'm not the right one at this moment? So I don't know. I don't know. And somewhere in there, there seemed to be a question about is there, what is a self? And, uh, you know, I think that's been the thing that's at the core of everything I've written in some ways is, is what is it like to, I guess I've said this before, but what is it like to be in this particular human body at this point in time? That's all I can speak from and, and about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I can speculate about what other people's lives are like, but I can't feel them. I don't know what it feels like to be in that person's body and have their way of thinking. And which also makes me distrust authority in some ways, it for myself, that I'm, I'm happy to say, like, I've been criticized in my poems for often using words like I think, or perhaps, or maybe, but it's partly because I think, how far do I want to state something as true? And how much am I limited by saying it's true for me? And so I don't want to assume that anyone should believe what I believe. And um, to me, having those phrases of doubt keeps the work more honest um, and less fascistic in some ways. I, I resist poems that lay down the law and say this is how it is um, because I immediately think it's not that way for me necessarily. So, mm -hmm. so, but this idea of asking, are you the same person as when you met me? I think the right answer is to say for him to have said no. Um, because first of all, he's not the same person because before he didn't know you. And so right. just the engagement with you has meant some aspects of his life are now shaped and reshaped and reconfigured. And, and you've brought ideas into his mind or your interaction has made him have to think differently about his own assumptions. So we're constantly being changed by everyone around us, and, but also everything we see and read and all of that, which to me means it is enough of a project, if you want to call it that, in poetry, to simply explore who am I? Um, because it's mm -hmm. going to keep changing. And I know it can make it seem like it, that can be a poetry that's of self-involvement. But I think with luck, um, you, get, you get poems that resonate enough so other people say, huh, I this poem has maybe not captured how I feel, 
but it's made me interrogate myself. Like, how do I feel about this thing? And um, that's what's exciting to me about, I guess, about writing and reading, writing by other people. And it's, um, it's strange because, I, I don't know, maybe this is veering a little off the path, but, but I used to worry that well, when I first was writing and after I <clears throat> had a few books and, and it would seem like everyone else was writing a book that each book was radically different. Um, you know, mm-hmm. here's my book about, you know, my parents dying or something. Here's my book about when I was, went to clown school or something. And it's like, wow, you know, I, why do I not have like major different chapters going on from book to book? And I, I used to think, oh, your poems, Carl, your books are just like the continued adventures of Carl. But then I thought, okay, that's one way to see it. And I used to turn to Dickinson when I would despair because I thought, well, she had a very limited number of topics. But but I feel like, well, why can't you write for decades about what it is to have a body, what it is to feel erotic or not, um, what it is to know loss and to look at the natural world? And I, so it helped me to not feel as out of step. And and, and these days, too, I think... I mean, I don't know, I won't probably get into it, but I feel as if there are clear patterns of what, of the poetry anyway that, I want to say the popular poetry, but maybe that's not right. More the poetry that gets a certain kind of attention. Um, You know, an NPR-friendly kind of poetry, I call it. And so it has to Mm -hmm. have a clear narrative hook. You know, you can't have, you can't be NPR-friendly when you write things about who, what is it to be a human being? What is it to have a body and how to conduct it? That's not, those aren't clear themes. Um, and, and there has to be, I don't know. Um, I, I guess it just makes me feel as if, it makes me seem as if I'm disparaging whole worlds of poetry. It's not that, but, but I think that it's enough to simply wonder what it's like to move through a life across a life and and to reflect back on what's happened to the extent that you can even trust your own memory and and to reflect on what your hopes are for anything like a future especially when you see the future as increasingly finite and 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 you know I think I think maybe that's a harder thing for people to think about because I think sometimes my poems are asking people to think about what are you doing with your life? What does it mean to you to have a life? And it's, I think it's easier to read about... See, I'm trying to be so politically correct. Um, why, though? <laughs> why? Um, it's just easier to write about other kinds of things in a simple way. I'll, I'll, maybe the best way to put it is, when I, first, when I first had my first couple of books, I know that people wanted to package me as a kind of poet of queer trauma of a certain kind and and they would prefer if I would throw much more race in than I was doing and I knew even then I I would tell the publishers I that's not who I am I I think of I don't think of myself as being someone who writes about race or about queerness though those are things from which I am constantly seeing everything and and it took a while for, I remember when I got my first review that didn't mention anything about 
those two identity markers. I thought, okay, now they're looking at the poems and they're not getting merely distracted because that's an easy thing to say, okay, well, he's queer, he's black, and therefore, but, but to sort of say, oh yeah, there are those things too, but he's speaking from humanness more broadly and mm-hmm. which doesn't seem to be, again, that doesn't seem to be how people, um, how readers have been trained maybe in the last 20 years to read. But, but one of the great things about, I think, being in my 60s is not caring. I mean, I don't know. It's not that I don't care. It's, it's, it's more that I think you, you can only do what you do, Carl. And, and you're, you're lucky that anyone cares about it at all. And um, it's the thing I tell my students the most often is because they'll say, what poems should I be writing? You know, what, the poem, it's like, what are the poems that you must write? And, you know, I, and I know it's easy to say that. And then they say, yes, but on Twitter, you know, or yes, this thing won a prize and I want to win a prize too. Those kinds of things. But, but what are you going to do? Change your whole personality and to, to write towards something? So that was my, you mentioned the Yale judging. One of my big frustrations, I loved doing that um, for 10 years. Mm-hmm. But one of my frustrations when I would read through the manuscripts is so many, I couldn't find anything wrong with them, but they just seemed mm-hmm. as if they were being polite, polite people. Yeah. And I wanted, and I would sort of sit there and say out loud, who are you? Like, who are you? I want to know in all your messiness. And I, I remember the first pick when I ran into Eduardo Corral's manuscript and I, I thought this manuscript is all over the place and I'm not even sure exactly what's going on, but I'm intrigued. I'm very intrigued. And, and, and I also thought this is not someone who's trying to curry favor for, with a judge, but is just writing. These seem like necessary poems, but, mm-hmm. but I think it's hard to do that. And it's hard over a long career to, to keep doing it and to remind yourself it's, you know, cause we all have our peaks and valleys of when people seem to want to read the poems or not. And, and yeah, seems useful to remember that these are the only poems that I could write. I think that this, so you've said um, that teaching is your vocation and you have all of these roles. Um, you, you were a Latin teacher for a long mm-hmm. time. Um, now you teach, you teach only graduate students yeah. right now. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and I want to ask you, in general about teaching, but also specifically a question about how do you talk to your students or what, what do you think is, the, is a, a useful way of talking to either students or mentees or you know, people you meet in the, in the poetry world to give them the courage to not try to write to write the poems that they feel they must write, not necessarily towards a certain aesthetic that might curry favor with uh-huh. judges, that might you know, get published in a certain kind of journal, win a prize, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because I think that that is a, a really necessary part of teaching, especially graduate students, especially MFA students, especially uh, low residency students, uh-huh. Uh, who who want to be published, who want to reach readers, 
um, but who also have come to you because they want authentic, real, direct uh, responses. Uh -huh. And I think that in a way, the most real direct response is, who are you? Uh -huh. Who, what is your, forget about success and failure for a minute, not because it's beneath us to talk about publishing uh -huh. or beneath us to say like, how are you gonna make money and survive in the world? But if we're gonna talk about like, I, I, I would say this question of who am I, um, what it is to have a body and how to conduct it is not only the most interesting question for me, but in some ways the only question. Uh -huh. And maybe that it, it reveals my sort of shortcomings, but I don't think so. That's the question I'm looking for. Uh -huh in all the poetry that I read, whether it's sort of about, you know, written in one style or another, or, you know, in sort of on the surface about one kind of content, that's the question underneath that I'm always looking uh -huh. for. Um, so how do you, how do you talk to, to, let's say somebody who hasn't had 20 books published and you want them to work towards authenticity or towards the towards the their existential questions. You know, I mean, I guess I don't know. I mean, it's not an easy answer, but I guess I I, I guess I try to get my students to to talk to me. I, I guess I think the thing is, a lot of people seem to approach teaching by like. They seem to think it's about imposition, the imposition of knowledge and of judgment on the mentee. I see teaching as an invitation, and I want it to be an invitation, one, to you know, have a conversation together. So I guess I think, you know, say there's a, an MFA student who's showing me a sampling of work, I mean, I'll, you know, sure, I can give statements about whether I think this poem is working or that, but I more often will ask, talk to me about how this poem looks on the page, why you think it looks this way, what, what was going on, you know, and which, can, which is much better than what I'm really thinking in my mind sometimes is, why are all your poems in couplets all the time? It's driving me kind of nuts, but, you know, I don't want to do that and say that it's wrong to write on couplets all the time, because maybe it isn't. You know, why did you do this? More often than not, a question like that, they'll say, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure why I did it. Mm -hmm. It seemed like it made it look, you know, tidy or something. And I think, are you a tidy person? You know, and then that gets into, well, actually, I mean, often these conversations end up in tears because without intending to, I seem to hit some kind of nerve where, you know, I, I had a conversation with a student at Breadloaf this last month about her work. Um, and I don't know what my question was, but it was something about, there was some, something where I said, you know, just, I feel as if in this stanza, as if somehow you're playing it safe, but I'm not even sure what's making me think that. She began crying. And she said, this is when, this is the moment in the poem when I was going to talk about this and this and that, but I took it out. And so I, I thought, okay, why did you feel you couldn't, you know, so, and not to make everything a therapy session, but 
but I think it was helpful for her, and in general it's helpful for students to realize that, oh, all I, what they often will say is, so all I had to do was just be honest with myself and, or hold myself accountable. And I think, sure, but, but I'd rather they say that than for me to say, it's about time you held yourself accountable. That doesn't really help them. But for them to actually see within their own work, um, and it can work the same way with talking about something that's working really great. Um, and I'll say, you know, this, I really love this moment in this poem. Just can you talk about how you stumbled into that? Or how did you arrive at that moment? And, you know, or with a manuscript, what would you say is most at stake for you? And, you know, because sometimes that's the moment when they realize, I don't know if I have anything at stake. I think I'm, you know, and, and on the other hand, I'm always aware that I'm much older than my students. And so, you know, I know how social media and all of that, it's easy for me to say, just write your own poems. Don't pay attention to the world. I mean, when I was first writing my poems, you couldn't pay attention to the world. Not through, I mean, there was no internet. So you, your world was like your town or something. But I didn't have a poetry world to consult. And, and so I know the pressures are, are much higher now. And the distractions are, there are many more of them. But anyway, that's one way I try. I don't know. You know, not that I'm some perfect teacher or anything, but as I also tell them, I, I always say that in the beginning of each semester, I'm just one human reader of poems. And so I'm not going to be getting it right with your poems all the time. And, and I may not even be the right reader for your poems but I'm someone with some experience, so I can just share my response. And, you know, I think one of the things they most get frustrated by my students is I'll never say whether I think a poem is good or not. Because I, I, I feel like that's not the point of workshop, to leave and say, okay, I passed, or my poem got an A. And, and so they often feel like, I can't tell, did Carl like my poem or not? But they shouldn't be fighting for my affection with poems. That's, they yeah. shouldn't care. So... Yeah. That's a huge um, worldview shift, I think, for a lot of uh, graduate mm -hmm. students. And um, the Commonplace episode that's coming out next um, in, in a few days is one uh, with Liz Lerman, mm -hmm. um, where I talked to her about the critical response process and the difference between, uh, you know, evaluation and response and feedback and what, what we're really trying to do with other human beings who have work in progress mm -hmm. and and why it, you know it, it's so I mean I want my students not to care what I think I understand that I have to support them in, in that quest to get I, I want my students to write work that I don't understand mm -hmm. That, that, that there's no uh, previously developed critical language to fully comprehend because they're doing something that is uh, not just what they're expected to do. And that's, that's, that's really, I mean, to go back to the Blizzard poem without creating a dichotomy between trust and understanding um, you know, you say it's not that one is better or one is worse, but I do think that what the students often, not always, are looking for is they, they want to find someone they trust and then just do whatever that person says. And 
I think that we're reaching for a kind of understanding rather than trust. It's very hard to find trust, and I'm not sure anyone should trust anyone else because to, to, to trust someone is to know that not only can they betray you, but they will betray you because we're different people, you know? Um, so my question yes. <laughs> <laughs> is, is this, is this, how, okay, do you, to the, do you feel that reading and or writing poems has some of the same qualities of falling in love or loving, if so, which, or is this like, a totally unhelpful way of thinking about your affiliative connection or your your affiliative feeling in as reader and writer of poetry. Well, what's becoming clear <laughs> to me is I don't think I think that hard about a lot of stuff. What I do think is, at least as a reader of poems, I feel like reading is a social engagement. It's a, it's a kind of social contract. You know, someone's written something, you decide you commit to reading it. And, and, and the only relationship I see to, I guess because I feel like to read something is to decide you want to commit to a sensibility. You want to get to know it. So to me, that's like trying to get to know a person. And, and it doesn't have to be about love as in, you know, big love, it can just be, do I like spending time with this person? Do I want to be friends with mm-hmm. this person? And, and I guess the thing that is also like meeting a new person is I think the best poems for me, the best poets, create, they present me with worlds that I haven't seen. Or I think I've seen it, but then they start to show how theirs is slightly off kilter in some way. And I'm thinking of someone like Bridget Pegging Kelly, where I enter that world and I think, okay, I don't live in this world that she lives in where snakes are flying through the air or whatever. And, you know, dead carcasses are always echoing and saying things and goat heads. But once I, she does something that makes me want to stay there. And, and I think, okay, I want to stay in this strange world. But the more time I spend in it, I see that, oh, the light that flickers in her world is the same as the light that flickers in mine, but differently. And so, so there's a kind of kinship. So I feel like I've, there's been estrangement in the sense of I go in and I don't get, like, what's this space like? Um, but, but then she teaches me what it's like and sort of invites me to go into different pockets of it. And, and I guess I think that's, that's akin to, I suppose, if you decide, okay, I want to keep returning to this, then that's akin to loving somebody that they, mm-hmm. they've presented you with their, the uniqueness of who they are. And you can only get in there so far, but in that way, like even if you've been with someone for 30 years, you still don't know exactly who they are inside when they're, when they're, you're not there and, and who they are mm-hmm. in their, their brain. But but something makes you want to keep coming back and waking up to this person and and being in conversation with them. So I do feel that as a reader. As a writer, 
No. I don't feel like writing is like falling in love. Um, I feel like writing is a kind of dare of... Um, it's a daring to think a little past where I, my thinking last stopped, I suppose. And so in, in that sense, I see it, see it as an ongoing quest. And I, I'll sort of think, okay, I, I have something I guess I want to say. And I say it. And, and that feels like, okay, that's, that's summed up. That topic is set. And then, you know, a month goes by or something. And I realize, well, that's not quite it. There's actually more to say about it. Um, and, and before you know it, you've been speaking for 30 years about something. And because it's always slightly different, um, whether it's the body, how the body experiences love, how, what sex is like at 25 versus, you know, 55. Um, and all of which is unexpected. I mean, no one tells, no one tells us because it's different for everybody. And those, to me, those are surprises that mean that there's a reason to keep writing, to kind of push forward. So I guess writing itself is poem by poem. It's my way of kind of, I used to say it was like keeping a wedge between myself and the unbearable. And that sounds very dramatic, though I still feel that way in some ways. But I feel as if it's a, it's a way to sort of stabilize myself a little more before I become unstable again. So it's not really about love and engagement with others in the same way. But, but when I read others' poems, and I hope when people read mine, there's this feeling that, oh, they're invited into a world that may seem strange, but if they want to spend time long enough, they'll, they'll maybe find something of themselves in it. And mm-hmm. which seems like it should be inevitable, you know, given that we are all human beings. So there should be something we can find in everyone's poems, but um, it's not always the case. I think that one of the many things I find over and over again in your poems and in your critical writing is an embodied way of thinking and feeling about observation and about bodies. And, but it's not just about bodies, it's embodied. From the beginning of reading your work, I felt the sensuality, the risk, the daring, the physicality. And now I'm seeing that and I'm, I'm getting a lesson, unintended or intended, on, on how to love, not just on how someone else experienced certain physical, emotional, psychological uh, experiences. Well, maybe that's the, that maybe that's the point sense? of poems is, is to, I don't know. I mean, if there is a point, um, it seems like one, or like, let's say one effect I find of reading a lot of different poems is um, by other people is that they do teach me, they give me possible ways to, to move through, um, you know, mm-hmm. a book I read every month. I mean, first of all, I probably read it almost every day, like in parts, um, is Linda Gregg's first book, Too Bright to See. And um, mm-hmm. it's, it, it taught me so many things about syntax and everything, but also it, 
there's a way in which each time I go back to those poems, they're so old at this point, and but I feel as if uh, they were an early model for me of of simply writing what you have to write, and but but for me, like I don't feel she wrote them for me um, or for a reader. Um, there's so much, you know, the fallout of a marriage that doesn't work out and everything. Um, but if that's all the book was, I wouldn't care. You know, it's another divorce book. Okay, big deal. Mm -hmm. But but it's somehow, the older I get, the more I see... Well, also, she's someone who's... I like reading her poems across her whole career. Because it's fascinating to see how this woman who's so wounded in many ways in that first book, how she holds on to that woundedness into her old age, but makes something of it and... And finds, you know, it's not as simple as, oh, well, she turned it into a strength or whatever. Um, because that never really happens. She's still very vulnerable. But but in reading her poems, I feel like I'm learning a way to get older. And a way that it's okay to have made mistakes and to, and to not try to correct them necessarily. And... I mean, I guess you said about so many poets if you read all their work, but but I think that's what's exciting is they become that's that's one model, you know, and then and then maybe it's you know reading all of Frank O'Hara or uh, I don't know Hopkins. Um, it seems I don't know. Also, it formally, I'm I've been interested. I'm getting ready to go to this conference on Robert Hayden in a couple of days and and I recently had my students read all of his collected poems and and just to see this the range of subject matter the range of form but somewhere beneath all that changing there's a consistent sensibility that's aging and um and that has is holding on to its secrets and I don't know I find somehow I find that formal lessons that I see in careers become life lessons for me in how to it suggests that we have many shapes in us i suppose many many chapters and and the way that we deploy our sensibility in one decade can turn into something else in another decade it's still who we are but now this is how we do it and i think that's a good thing to to if one finds a poet and feels like they're learning ways to think about loving yeah. And and I think what's exciting about having so many voices out there is there's not just one way. So, I mean, I've talked about Linda Gregg, but I mean, it's not like I believe there should be one book that is like a person's Bible or something. Or I think it's important to read all of it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Well, if Linda Gregg ha helps you learn a way to get older, I've returned to your work this time really appreciative of the way I'm finding in your work what it is to fall in love, to be in love that I didn't know before. That's exciting. It's also interesting to me because I think sometimes I get the sense when people think of my poems that they, they think I'm actually a very brooding, frightening person. And the thing that happens most often when I go to conferences and stuff is people will say, oh, wow, you actually, you know, laugh or you actually, you know, are friendly. And I think, what, what did you think I was? And, 
You know, it's like, wow. Um, so, so I'm glad if people, if you at least are reading it and saying, oh, here's a person who loves, has fallen in love. I mean, I mean, it's almost as if people think, I didn't know you had emotions except to be stern and strict and, and a little bit scary. And, and I think, okay, that's just, those are poems. But I think, I don't know, I think there's lots of humor in my poems, actually. And, you know, oh, yeah. it's just not funny, ha-ha. That's all right. Yeah. Um, what are you working on now? I know we've gone so long. I know you have a, a new book coming out that's essays, mm-hmm. right? My Trade is Mystery mm-hmm. is coming out uh, in November, I yeah. believe. I'm really excited about that um, because I love your essays as well as your poems. But what, what, are, what are you working I mean, on now? I don't know. I, I'm, never, I'm not able to work on a book. Like, you know, people say I'm working mm-hmm. on this book and all that. And it's like, that's great if that's how they work. Um, so I'm always poem by poem. So I'm working on, like, fixing line six of my nine-line poem that I wrote out mm-hmm. yesterday. But I'm aware that I have enough poems. Usually when I get to about 45 or 50 poems, I realize you probably have a good 30 in here that could be the next book so that's where I am right now but I have been forcing myself not to sit down and look at these poems because first of all then the war only came out in February and it's kind of like well Carl this is the problem part of me says it's just my pace at this point it turns out I seem to have a book every couple of years not because I'm trying mm-hmm. to. Um, like, I think some people think, oh, he's just a poem machine or something. I'm really not trying to. But, you know, if you write one or two keeper poems a month, after a couple of years, you have a slender volume. And mm-hmm. and I myself don't like books to be, of poems, to be longer than 60 or 70 pages. So, so that equals about 30 or so poems for me. So I suppose there's that project, but... I would have to sit down and do it. And I feel like it's too soon, even though I'm aware that if you don't turn it in this year, Carl, then if you wanted the book to come out like in 24, you really should turn it in this year. But then is there any urgent, you know, what's the urgency? The only problem with the, the problem, problem with this is that because I do seem to write a lot, the danger is that I'll lose interest and I'll just, Mm-hmm. get rid of everything there are probably plenty of listeners who would say good Carl you know we've had enough of you anyway I remember there was a review yeah. like in 2000 where somebody a reviewer basically said why is no one stopping him from writing the same poem over and over he has had this many books in this many years and he needs to be stopped I'm like wow um, thanks David Wojohn. Um <laughs> but whoops um, but, but I continued along beyond that um so i don't know this so we'll see i guess i don't really have a project you know is that like you said there's the book of essays coming out and then i don't know i I, i'm getting ready to i'm retiring in three semesters and um and i keep thinking well what are you going to do carl i know wow is what my my chair keeps saying that no one believes me because in my department, and it seems like everyone else, everywhere else, people seem to keep teaching until they're in their 80s. But I was mm-hmm. raised to believe you retire at 65, and mm-hmm. that's what I'm going to do. 
so so I don't so I've been asking my question a larger question of like yeah so what is next Carl is it like what are you going to do or will it be like what my students have suggested oh you're going to basically then just prepare for death and one one student said <laughs> that and they said what do you what's retirement exactly kind of just sitting around waiting to die and I thought I mean only insofar as we're all waiting I'm not waiting I'm, I'm I understand that's the journey but I'm not going to be waiting I don't know so who knows who knows what I'll be doing more cooking shows right I, I hope there'll be that I hope that people will still invite me once in a while to read somewhere and uh, you know or or will I end up like Tom Gunn who just sort of stopped writing and you know that mm. happens too and um and then what to do about that and maybe that would be okay or maybe it wouldn't be and you know or there's the ever unpredictable aspect of health like you know we make mm -hmm. all these plans but who knows feel fine today and who knows what yeah. happens the next day i'm very excited about your retirement i mean i'm excited to the point where it's a little problematic because i think it's too early for me to have senioritis but i'm kind of having senioritis where you know, I care, but at department meetings, for example, I like they want to talk about a ten-year plan. It's like, up, oh, I'm out, I'm out, I'm not going to be here in ten years. So, <laughs> plan without mm -hmm. me, because why should why should I weigh in when they're the ones who will have to live with their their new hires or their new decisions? So, wow. well, I mean, it's possible. It's possible I could be offered half a million dollars to work each year. And then I would say, okay, well, maybe, maybe I'll stay on, but I don't think that's going to happen. Right. Well, I want whatever is best for you and most exciting. I think what's best. I think what's best is to leave Missouri <laughs> and to move back to Massachusetts and hang out with a dog on the yeah. beach, things like that. Yeah. Okay. So, do you have any questions or? things you wanted to say before we end. And then I was hoping that we could end with you reading one more poem, either sure. something uh, newish, as in just unpublished, or even just something you feel like reading, if it's if a poem you read every time. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, do I have questions? No, I don't. I mean, I really like how what the questions have been, because they've been surprising, and that's not always so. Um, that's why I was excited to be on this podcast because I know that they tend to go down unexpected paths and, and I, I like that. Um, you know, I, I feel as if, you know, you know how there's the kind of interview where people ask you things like, do you write on the computer or with a pen and paper? And, you know, do you stand up or sit down and what's your writing routine? And, you know, all that stuff, which is interesting too, if someone wants to know that, but that's not as interesting for me because I've been asked those things a lot. No, except I did want to say one thing from long ago when we were talking about syntax. At that time, it occurred to me that I wonder if, if it's possible to think of a life as one long sentence. And so mm -hmm. it makes sense that, you know, in the way that with an actual sentence on the page, you have subordinate clauses and different things that have to happen and doubling back. And, and when people ask me, like, why do you write that way? And it, it occurred to me, but isn't that what life is like? 
it, it seems like, you know, we're, we're raised to think there's a straightforward path. We're going to go to school, we're going to partner up, partner up with somebody, we're going to have this number of children, then they're going to take care of us when we're old and we're going to die with them all looking upon us with love. Okay, but then it doesn't turn out to be that way, you know, starting with something like the partnering up. And you don't expect mm-hmm. that it's going to be same sex when you were told you were going to be doing it this way. Or, or you don't want to have kids. Or you, or you do, but you can't. Or, you know, various things that are unexpected. Um, or you're going to go off to have the new job. And, and, and things don't turn out to be as perfect as you thought they would be. So I, I feel like when people talk about syntax, maybe we're really just talking about life, you know, and different moments get different priority or fall away, just as happens in a sentence. But that's not mm-hmm. a question. It's more of an observation. Um, I love that. But, yeah, like I tell my, I have undergraduate advisees, and they're always talking about, well, my according to my parents, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go to med school, and then in 10 years, I'm going to be doing this. And, and either I'll say to them, Okay, and how do you, what do you think is going to happen? Which usually just silences them. Or we'll say, what do you think will happen if when you leave our meeting today, you turn the corner and either catch eyes with somebody and realize something has changed, you've fallen for this person, or a truck runs over your foot. And, and they look kind of astonished, like, what are you saying? It's like, I'm not saying that either of those things is going to happen, but, but if they did, like, some of your plan is going to be a little changed. And, and you know, they feel like, yeah, you know, you can only plan a certain amount, but it's kind of like just nosing forward a little bit. How's life going on today? And, you know, even, I think this even when saying goodbye to my partner each morning when he goes off to work and think, you know, the assumption is we're going to see each other tonight and be eating dinner, but... Either one of us could not survive the day, you know, or or something happens that, you know, things just change radically. Who knows? Okay, that was a long ramble. Feel free to edit it out. Um, Never. Not that one. That was beautiful. um, You know, so you were talking about poems. So it sounds like you would like me to read like a fresher one. Like a newer one. What about one that's coming out in a magazine in a month or so? Awesome. Is that, I am I allowed that. to read poems like yeah. that? Uh, definitely. I've been reading that reading, so, you know, <clears throat> why can't I read it here? Anyway, this poem, this yeah. poem is called Fist and Palm. Like a fist in a palm. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There are plenty who'd hardly recognize me now. I used to be that cruel by which I mean I was frightened mostly, and now I'm mostly not. Joy, if only flickeringly, each day astounds me. The man I used to be dismounts, relents for a bit, before digging his boots, streaked with longing, my own longing, what I can't help, hard into my sides again, into the man I've become, his way of reminding me we've only stopped for rest, a short rest, some water. We've years to go still. He has his job. I have mine. Speechlessness is not an option, he whispers into my ear. He spits on the words themselves after, as if to make them stay, 
or just to make sure I'm listening, but I'm always listening, as I always obey. Isn't this obedience, these songs I've built from things too difficult to speak of? So there's a little poem. Obedience, fists, palms, joy, the whole gamut. Yes. Where is that? In poetry, in November, I guess. Awesome. So, awesome. Yeah. A little, a little something. Oh. I don't know. Whenever I write a new poem, I think, okay, I'm still alive. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, and I think, what did you think you were before, Carl? But, you know, I was kind of like, <laughs> there was a chance I might flicker out. And it's like, oh, it's still flickering. I feel like the ashes in that Shakespeare sonnet, the ashes. Huh, in me, thou seest the glowing of such fire as on the ashes of his youth doth lie, something like that. And the whole idea that the ashes seem cold, but there's a little glowing still. That's how I feel like as long as we're still, still writing occasionally or still wanting to live in the language world, we're still poets, I guess. I don't know. Humans. We still have the will to look around us and to think about things. Our boots streaked with desire. Yeah. Longing streaked with longing. Yeah. What can you do? The boots still uh, fit, so keep wearing them. <laughs> this has been totally amazing. You've been listening to episode 105 of Commonplace with Carl Phillips. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was produced by me, Valentine Conady, Langa Chinyoka, and Christine LaRusso. Many thanks to Grey Wolf Press, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and Liverite, and to the Association of Writing Programs Conference. The music you're listening to was performed, composed, and recorded by Judah Darwin Zucker Gorin. Huge thanks to the patrons who support Commonplace, to all of you who send messages of support and encouragement, and to you, listener. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.